Good evening, everyone. Um, thank you so much for spending your Saturday evening with us. I am Yimin, and I am a designer of Till Bio Fashion Tech, uh, an ecological fashion studio of the community-based development studio Till, which stands for um, today's industrial living landscapes. As the organizer of this event, we are so very excited to inaugurate the Union of Concerned Researchers in Fashion Connecticut chapter. UCRF is an international alliance of fashion researchers who are involved in addressing our intensifying ecological and planetary crisis. The artist founder of Till Bio Fashion Tech, Jane Philbrick, is a signatory of UCRF. I learned about UCRF through Dr. Tim Morrisonen, who is the co-founder of the organization and a professor I extremely admire at my alma mater, Parsons School of Design. UCRF's, UCRF's mission to take a leadership role in fashion sustainability, to advocate for systematic change, to diversify the discourse of the field, to organize and to formulate visions, converge with my path, a young designer researching, experimenting, and creating solutions. And also converges with the purpose of Till Bio Fashion Tech, that is to build a new model that makes the old model obsolete, quoting Buckminster Fuller. It is truly exciting that we have a diverse panel here this evening to explore the opportunity of ecological fashion, um, not in the distant future, but right here, right now. We came to know these practitioners um, through community connections, through doing what we truly believe in and doing what must happen. There is so much beauty in being connected to these amazing people and realizing the support and companionship we have. And then I want to just take one minute, a quick second, to say thank you to Priscilla uh, Igram and the Studio Fairfield for providing us with the venue tonight. And once again, thank you so much for being here. The movement of ecological fashion and planetary ecology is a movement of imagination, not of outlandish thoughts, but of courageous action that we urgently need today. Enjoy. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Iman, and thank you very much, Ab and Priscilla, for hosting us. There you are. Thank you very much. So um, the Union of Concerned Researchers in Fashion uh, uh, connects our small community globally and, uh, and looks at the importance of um, engaging in the issues in a sustained and complex way. Uh, we, have, uh, we know that fashion is one of the most polluting industries in the world, and there's a real market imperative to find a solution. But it's hard to have an output that can satisfy our crisis if the actual model itself is responsible. And so when Eamon says this is an imagination uh, effort, we really are here to ask questions with our practitioners um, who come from fashion, from fiber, from farming, ranch, and from business enterprise. And it's, um, a, for us, a model of building a diverse uh, partnership so that all of us can come together from our different expertise to create something we don't even know what it can be yet. And um, my name is Jane Philbrick, as, as Eamon introduced me, and I'm an artist. And um, I'm not a fashion designer, and I'm not a farmer, and I'm, um, I'm, 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 I, am a, I am an entrepreneur. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I can sit with you, Nancy. <laughs> um, and there's a, for those of you who know art history, there is a uh, terrific 
uh, legacy of artists working at the system level for really um, uh, wholesale reinvention. reinvention. Um, commonly, uh, it can be thought of as an artist as someone who paints or sculpts. And one of the things I think about uh, and have been thinking about for a couple of decades now is how do we as artists uh, invent and create without further uh, drawing away from uh, scarce and cherished natural resources that are under pressure and then produce in such a way that we are not adding to more of the output that uh, is a major is issue in the industry we're dealing with now, a fashion of overproduction. And so to me, it is about bringing these people together, bringing all of us together, and, and thinking, how do we reinvent what we do um, and do so together and do so with uh, terrific satisfaction and, um, and engagement. So our panelists here, um, I'm going to start at the far end with William, who is our chief creative officer at TILBFT and stands, uh, sits here, sits here speaking from a fashion perspective. Uh, and then we have Jennifer Duff, who is with Fibershed. She's going to explain what that is, a national organization around uh, building soil vitality to support biodiversity through plant-based fibers and animal systems. Yes? Connecticut Fibershed chapter of the national organization Fibershed. And then our, our really very special guest is Trent Luce, who is a sixth generation central Nebraskan rancher and a radio host. And I had the great, uh, terrific um, pleasure of being a guest on your radio show, Rural Root Radio. And um, welcome to the Northeast. Thanks for us. Yeah, a pleasure. And then here we have Nancy. And Nancy is the um, uh, executive director of the Southeastern Connecticut Enterprise Region, so speaking really from an economic development and entrepreneurship uh, basis. I would like to begin with questions, okay? And I start, I'm gonna take, I have questions for each of you, and then I think that that will, um, so you know what the format is. And so we'll ask the questions, which will lead toward, I think, a bit of a shared discussion, and then very quickly, I hope that we are able to invite from, from all of you who've come. So I would begin with Jennifer. Yeah, I know, your favorite part, public speaking. <laughs> Great. All right. And so Jennifer, I would really love for you to introduce Fibershed, which is how we met. <laughs> so uh, Fibershed is basically a group that, in a similar way to how the local food movement has come up, um, is encouraging local localized fiber. So in the same way that you would have your organic lettuce that's grown locally, um, your fiber shed product, something that was grown in the Connecticut fiber shed would be raised in Connecticut. And then all of the um, economic sort of inputs, the, the milling and the shearing and the you know, hand knitting or weaving, would all also happen in Connecticut. So you're keeping that local economy really vibrant. And um, the national organization is also focusing a lot on teaching farmers regenerative grazing practices. Um, we haven't branched into that too much yet in Connecticut, but um, it's on the, on the horizon, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but we're building our local economy and we're promoting our local farmers and encouraging the use of local fibers. 
Uh, I think it's what one of the things that's amazing about the organization, though, is it really is a national organization, and you have quite a close relationship with southeastern New England Fibershed and New York Fibershed, and right. I mean, so it's really while it's very local, it's also really uh, a regional organization, and so um, which. I think aligns very closely with the way eco ecologists, progressive ecologists, are looking at entire territories. And even urban planners aren't looking so much at this, as much as we talk about the actuality of the divide between urban and rural, we have to look forward, and it's to your mission, of understanding that these are uh, 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 geographies that are connected mm -hmm. and interdependent, and how do we see ourselves together. Well, and the, um, the fiber shed model is much more resilient. So with our sort of broken fiber uh, supply chain currently in the U.S., we have very, very limited amount of milling and you know, scouring the various manufacturing um, for wool. And one of the things that's happening with all of these sort of nodes of fiber sheds in their overlapping regions is that um, it's to sort of bolster that industry and to um, create, you know, vibrant <laughs> centers in a lot of different places of the country. So it creates a much more resilient system if you can um, build manufacturing in different pockets of the, the United States instead of just everyone sending it to one place. Thank you. <laughs> um, one of the urgencies, uh, one of the urgencies for this is um, for those of you who are maybe new to the uh, to the fashion world, though you can't be because we all get dressed in the morning, um, but maybe not as as aware. Only three percent of all the clothes worn in this country are actually made domestically. And post NAFTA, I said at one point that we lost our manufacturing, and I believe William, you said we scrapped it. We gave it away. We gave it away, yeah. which is a which is a different thing. So. Um, when we're looking at the fiber that we're pretty much focused on tonight on wool, 90% of global wool supply um, is uh, global fine apparel wool comes from Australia, which has been, as, as all of us know, tragically uh, on, uh, from drought to, to wildfires. Um, so there's what we call supply chain precarity. Um, and then now what we're looking at is uh, with the virus. Um, all our outsourcing offshore clothing, um, uh, that's, that manufacturing chain is really uh, looking very vulnerable and is very vulnerable. William does a lot of work in Europe as well, so if you could speak about uh, the context of this from a fashion perspective. Hello. <laughs> both from the fiber and from the manufacturing, please. So um, I've worked uh, in the U.S., in Japan, in uh, Hong Kong, in France, and in Italy, and I'm involved in another project in Italy. And for the last month and a half, we've been scrambling to bring help our, some of our clients bring their business back to Europe because China is essentially closed. And, you know, they've gotten very addicted to having the price structure and the, how easy it is to buy finished products in China and ship it around the world. So all these br famous brands are bringing their um, production back to Italy. And then now that Italy's shut, all those companies are shut. They sent everyone home. So, and we all think, oh, it'll pass, you know, but there are very strict um, seasons involved in fashion. So if that product isn't finished by May so that it can be on a boat from China June 1 so that it can be in stores or in warehouses July 1 and in stores July 15th, it won't happen. 
So I, I'm concerned for all of us that, you know, our usual, our, our creature comforts will go to the store in July, August, September. There'll be nothing there. You know, so we're not really, none of us are really thinking about that. But so, and one of the, can, can, um, one of the strengths of Italy is that they have this deep knowledge of manufacturing. So when you walk in and say, I want to build this, they say, sure, no problem. They understand you. It's all through sign language, whether you speak the language or not. We had that here. We gave it all away. We wanted it cheaper. We wanted it easier. People just wanted to make the same thing over and over and over again. Oh, no, we don't make shirts. We make t-shirts. I can't, you know, I can make a hoodie. I can make a t-shirt. That's it. I don't want to try anything else. That's how I'm profitable. And away it went. Um, now, we're, the, the struggle will be to, to replace some of that know-how, but I think through technology, we can do that. And so the idea that we can, and the, the other interesting thing about fashion is it creates tribes. Like, are you Ralph Lauren? Are you Calvin Klein? Are you Prada? Are you Armani? But to create a tribe where people are not so much worried about fashion, but they're worried about where it came from and is it helping locally? That's quite interesting. That's sort of the new way forward, we believe. <laughs> so, um, oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um, to that uh, notion of, of the local and uh, Jennifer as you said because I know you're involved with the local food movement as well um, that question of where did my food come from we're now asking where does my fiber come from and this is really a, 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 a very gnarly issue um, with Jennifer um, the fiber shed founder is a woman named Rebecca Burgess and Rebecca Burgess book about fiber shed came out in November and the first two chapters are pretty hard going because it's really looking at the chemical composition of our clothing and we've all you know we don't even think about this but the membrane of our skin is very porous and these these textiles are rubbing and rubbing against our, our skin and as you know one of the things we're looking at is is a growing uh, movement of uh, buying vintage, buying used clothing, and with some of these new synthetics, when they volatize, when they break down, we're not quite sure what's happening over there. And so, um, William, I wanted to ask you very specifically speaking, so William's background, he did his undergraduate degree at uh, Philadelphia University, as it was then known, Jefferson now, right. um, which is the uh, country's oldest textile school, right. went off and did your master's work in Florence, right. then worked in Paris for legendary studios of Bauman and Balenciaga, came back to New York, Perry Ellis, Jay Mendel, uh, Dan von Furstenberg. And so from that position of being a real, in a, in, a, in a real fashion industry, what do you think of the, the sustainability movement within the uh, actual world of, of, of fashion? We know that the UN charter came out and in November, Condé Nast signed it, which requires as an article of a signatory that you have to use your platform to speak to the consumer about climate impacts and environmental impacts. Yeah, I, I think if, especially in today's world, if you want um, disruption, you want change, or if you want change, it must be disruptive. So, you know, um, e uh, Ford has been making electric cars for years, they went nowhere. Tesla came along, they've changed the world. Um, like or not like Elon Musk, he's changed the world. Um, and I think the same thing needs to happen in fashion because all of these big brands that are deeply seated with deep, uh, deep and long production tunnels are gonna say, oh, now this is green. And what they really mean is this product has 10% organic something stuck inside of it. 
they don't mean it's sustainable. They're going to tell you that, and you're going to you're going to look at the um, promotion and go, okay, this is better. You know, just like when they changed baked beans and they said new and improved, all they did was change the label. It's the same system. So I think um, as far as local economies and as far as sustainable fashion, the only way to change that system is to upend it, to disrupt it. And that's, you know, I think that's our goal. Yeah, yeah. welcome to I the believe. revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Trent. Jane. I can be a disruptor. <laughs> that's, that's why you're at the table. And we have a sign language in rural America, too, but I'm not sure we want to go into that. Today. Yeah. So my question to you, and um, uh, you were just in the UK and uh, meeting with, meeting with the, uh, rancher, the farmers in the UK, and I know that you are a rancher and we have farmers here. We're a small, uh, small scale. My question to you um, is really about when we're looking at the importance of the wool economy um, in, um, in making good ecological choices, a very important part of that economy is meat and the animal protein. And one of the conversations that you'll have from people is like, oh, well, don't eat meat and livestock is, you know, is methane and bad for the environment, all of that. And I thought that the farmer you interviewed on uh, in the UK spoke to this really well. And I know that um, my colleagues who care about the wool economy are really actively looking to say, how do we support uh, the meat part of this uh, sheep economy? And I'm wondering if you could speak to that for us. I would love to speak to that. I was in the UK for five days this week. I got on nine farms, <clears throat> excuse me, and then I met with the uh, ambassador for the US to the UK, and it was a tremendous event. And there are many thoughts that have run through my, my mind as we're talking about this and leading up to it. And, for, and first, I'll talk about greenhouse gases, because obviously it, it is the top of mind for so many people today. And the lead researcher on this in the world, in fact, when I'm in the UK this week, they're quoting Dr. Frank Mitlerner from the University of California, Davis. And he's been working on this in terms of greenhouse gases from all sources. When I first met him 18 years ago, people were laughing at him, looking at what type of greenhouse gases a cow emits. And they're like, what a ridiculous research project. <laughs> Suddenly today, we're fortunate that we have this data and much of the reason that we're all here is just to make sure people understand fact from fiction. The greatest fiction in food consumption today is the ruminant animal's co contribution to climate change. If you look at just the United States could alone. You, could you explain ruminant? Ruminant would be all animals that have more than a simple stomach. Th those of us in this room have a simple stomach. A chicken has a simple stomach. A pig has a simple stomach. Cows and sheep have four chambers to their stomach. Sheep stomach's not exactly like a cow, but it operates in the same manner. So a horse, a goat, a llama, alpaca, uh, what haven't I named, a cow, they all have four chambers to their stomach. And what that means is they can consume cellulose material. They have a, a fermentation vat in there where they extract the nutrients from it, and then they re-fertilize the soil, and that's really what the soil health is about. You cannot have proper soil health without the ruminant animal. Right. It's just impossible. And so if you look at the greenhouse gas production in the United States today, 2% comes from ruminant animals. That would be cattle, bison, 
the few number of horses that we have, the six million head of sheep that we have, uh, fewer goats than that that we have. All landfills in the United States contribute 2.3% of the greenhouse gases. Transportation, people driving on I-95 through Manhattan into Fairfield, Connecticut with one person in a car contributes 25% of all greenhouse gases in the United States. 30% come from the fact that we don't want to be in here with a candle. It comes from that electricity generation. And the remaining 40% is from other sources. Number one in that is construction. How many times have we heard today that this used to be green, it used to be farmland, now it's concrete, condos, and consumers? The interesting part of that whole scenario is that the only sector within that whole uh, diagram that I just described that contributes to reducing the emissions from the atmosphere and putting carbon back into the soil is the ruminant animal. Could you explain how? When you drive a car, your primary emission is carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere. The only thing that uses carbon dioxide, a plant. Carbon dioxide is plant food. And the more that you have, more carbon dioxide you have in the atmosphere, the more plant food you have. And if an animal does not consume that plant, it will not be as healthy and it will not consume as many of the greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. The only greenhouse gas that we talk about and the reason they want to hang up on methane is because cows do produce methane, but methane has a life cycle of 10 years where carbon dioxide has a life cycle of an infinite amount of years. So you, you use the, the ruminant animals, you graze the forages. The more animals that you have, the more forage requirements you have, the more nutri uh, carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases you pull from the atmosphere and the more that you produce. So the unfair story in the whole scenario is the consumption of meat in that and the way that we do that in the United States. So the important thing about grazing though, as, as, um, as I've understood it from um, soil scientists, is, I mean, there was a whole concern that grazing was actually the problem and grazing was, was, was ruining the soil, when actually now it's understood that when you graze and you tear the grass and it tears the roots, it promotes actually the uh, roots growing even stronger to repair themselves. So that's part of the revitalization that happens for the soil. That's correct. And it's about proper grazing. Proper grazing. And that's our right. one thing that that's, gets me excited about wool, and I'm a cattleman. I, I absolutely love my cattle. In 1934, we had 70 million head of sheep in the United States. Today we have 6 million. 1934, we had 70 million sheep. 1934, the Taylor Grazing Act was passed, and it put preferential treatment to grazing cattle over sheep. Consequently, we went away from one of the greatest grazing management strategies, which, by the way, was uh, incubated in Texas, and that was the more multi-species grazing that hmm. you do, the healthier the forages. Oh, yes, so the cows are the most finicky. They are just like my kids, they only eat certain things. <laughs> only the primo things, right? <clears throat> and then the, the horses come along and the horses eat things that the cattle didn't eat. And then the least finicky of all is the sheep and then the goats. And when you do that multi-species grazing, you benefit the forages, you benefit the production of all of the products you get from those animals. And here's the sad part that I don't know if anybody here is aware of. Obviously, Abby is. Um, 
so where was oh the majority of the sheep in this country today it cost more to shear the sheep than the wool is worth consequently the biggest trend in sheep production is to hairless sheep dorpers and katahdins those that do not need to be shorn that to me is a travesty because this natural fiber has a tremendous opportunity now I'm not going to speak ill of my friends in Australia because I have been fortunate to address them two times in the last five years in their big sheep meeting. They have a similar scenario. Uh, Excuse me, in 1950, when wool was king, Australia had 150 million sheep. Today, there are less than 70 million head of sheep. So the real issue comes back to what we've been talking about, and I think Jen lined it out really well. How can we source natural fibers? How can we continue to utilize these natural fibers in a local way when the local benefits the local economy? But just to make sure that we make all of these decisions based upon the facts. One thing that I, one reason I was really excited about coming is that there's this overlooming notion that farmers are somehow not sustainable today. My family has been farming the same land, Quincy, Illinois, since 1832. I thought that was pretty cool. This week, I was in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I was on a farm that was homesteaded in 1736. And that family is still farming the same land. In 1900, it required five acres of land to produce enough food to feed one person for a year. It also required five acres of land to produce enough food to feed the horses and the mules that we used to produce the food in 1900 because we had zero tractors in 1900. So you could literally say that in 1900 it required 10 acres of land to produce enough food to feed one person for a year. And in 2020, it takes less than a third of an acre to produce enough food to feed one person for a year because farmers have been sustainable. The greatest travesty in what we're doing today in agriculture is that we've moved away from the word sustainable because people have hijacked it. We're afraid to endorse anybody talking about us being sustainable because what the new term of sustainability is somebody sitting in a cubicle designing a marketing campaign for some food marketer is talking about what we can do to help the farmer become sustainable. Who's more sustainable than been in the same business, the same land since 1736? And so getting all of this fact, all of these facts presented about the sustainability and what we've learned in soil health. That is the new dawn. We've learned a lot about soil health, but we're not there yet. We're going to continue to increase organic matter. We're going to continue to focus on improving soil health, and that's where we're going to focus for the future. You know, I'll just give you a quick history lesson that kind of describes that. I think most people learn that from 1930 to 1937, the Great Plains of America had what we call the Dust Bowl. It was severe drought, high temperatures. Many of the California families left the Great Plains of America in the 30s because they couldn't hack it. They were just, there was dust tracked as far as Manhattan, New York, from Guymon, Oklahoma. That's how severe it was. The best part of the story is that from 2000 to 2007, the Great Plains of America had less measurable precipitation than we did during the dirty 30s. And we did not relive the Dust Bowl. In fact, from 2000 to 2007, we continued to produce more food each and every year with less rainfall than we had during the dirty 30s. Why? 
because we've been working on soil health. We've been working on organic matter in the soil. We've been working on maintaining wind erosion, and we do all of these things better than we've ever done, knowing that we're just getting started on this journey. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the uh, urgencies uh, for this um, from a global supply chain um, uh, vulnerability perspective is the way temperatures are rising. So in Australia with the, um, there's a, we, uh, so when you go, if you go to the link online, you'll see that we've put research uh, up for you to look at and we've done a, a small animation, a small animation of research um, on the droughts in Australia, and it's 400 years of drought cycles that were then always corrected by rain. Um, and what happened in 2016 was actually a quite a wet year, but the temperatures are so high that the rain is evaporating, and so the drought per, uh, consist, uh, uh, the drought conditions persist. And so the health of our landscapes and rebuilding that soil becomes even more important as our other supplies are at peril. And one of the things that I think is our opportunity, and Nancy, where, where we're meeting, is um, both the combination of supply and manufacturing. So to your uh, statistics about uh, how, how much cattle we've lost in these years, um, there's a, a book that came out uh, of uh, Vanishing Fleece, Clara Parks. Last year, it's been very new. I mean, there's been some really good work on, on wool recently. And she cites this statistic, which is between 2000 and 2011, 17 U.S. manufacturers closed every day. That is an amazing statistic, okay? So when we're looking at these supply chain precarities, the difficulty of the uh, quarantine in Asia, the, uh, the wool supply at risk in Australia, Nancy, I would say as an economic development uh, uh, head and looking for um, uh, to build opportunity, this is kind of a fantastic time um, for us to be working like this. But I really have to complicate that by saying one of the issues we deal with in the fashion world is a business model that relies on toxic overproduction. Okay, so I think. To your point, Trent, when you were saying, um, you know, let's get these facts straight, one of the things that's happened with wool becoming such a premium fiber is this idea that it's a solution, okay? But when we look at something like where does, you know, to, to the issue of trade, which I think it's complicated, as your guest in your last, uh, the, the, uh, your most recent um, interview talked about trade and the importance of trade and having cooperation internationally and how good that is for global well-being, right? But trade also has these incredible ecological impacts, and shipping is a really, really dirty uh, transport. So, Nancy, we're in a really interesting situation of looking at our supply chains are fragile. It's a tremendous opportunity for us to move forward, but to move forward and re just reiterate what we had in the past isn't going to get us where we're going to get, where we need to, to get. And so I'm wondering if you want to have some thoughts about what that might mean, um, looking at building development and opportunity in our local communities. Sure. Thank you. I'll use this one yes, to uh, pull you guys over. Um, so 
I'm kind of like the wet blanket in the room, right? So economic development is boring. We love apartments. You know, we love construction. Um, if there's a fire, we're in good shape. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I met Jane, uh, what, about a m six weeks ago or so? Um, came in to talk about um, the really cool project she's doing at Stanford. Really cool, really exciting, very interesting. Um, and then she started talking about how she wanted to put a wool scour in New London. And I looked at her like she was wackadoo. And I was like, well, you don't, cleaning wool in a city? What are you talking about? Um, and as we were talking, it, it occurred to me as I had to step back and put these cool and uh, interesting notions into language that we understand. Manufacturing. Southeastern Connecticut has a manufacturing heritage that goes back hundreds of years. Um, we have a burgeoning defense industry. We have wind energy coming into our region, all based in manufacturing. This is a manufacturing project. We happen to have an empty building in New London that used to be a newspaper building that used water. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> hallelujah. Um, and um, we have a very cool arts culture in New London. Um, we have uh, as wonderful uh, colleges and world-class um, theater and museums and young people that are doing all sorts of cool making in our maker spaces, great um, immigration uh, heritage in our region, um, primarily due to our, our two um, Native American casinos that brought in a lot of immigrants. We have great food and great diversity. Um, and this fits, right? This fits into that, uh, that ecosystem. So for me, um, plus we have a sister project in Stanford, and wouldn't it be cool to link projects across the state. Um, so to me, yes, it makes sense. And part of the challenge is to put it into the language that people like me that perhaps have some um, control over assets or whatever it may be, understand how this fits into the whole ecosystem. Um, I think this is an incredible opportunity. Um, I'm very excited about it. We have a great farming and agricultural um, history. We're losing a lot of our farms. Um, uh, to apartments and condos and things like that because we have a burgeoning workforce and we need more places for them to live. But we also need cool places for them to live. And I think this fits right in um, with making our, our region um, more diverse in terms of the type of manufacturing we do, um, more artistically uh, gifted um, in terms of using these textiles in really uh, beautiful ways. Um, and it, it just, when you, when you put it into the right language, it fits. Um, so I don't longer think you're wackadoo. So yeah, so I, I might wackadoo. be in a minority. <laughs> we, <laughs> um, but but yeah, I think um, you you said it right in terms of, of sourcing. Is people that are coming into our communities are young. You know, New London is a very young city. They want to know where things come from, um, and they're willing to pay a little bit more for where things come from. Um, I know my son is 16. He's all about conservation and sustainability and knowing where things come from. Um, he's on a tear right now to ban commercial fishing, you know? So, you know, it's... <laughs> um, exactly. Well, he'd love to. Um, but um, it, it is. Um, and it doesn't have to be something that's out there. I, I think we just need to bring it into a language that people understand that it fits and it makes sense and it makes sense now so we don't lose this opportunity. Yeah. So um, what I think is, is I, I think your, your, your statement that it has to be in language that you can understand. And um, what, what we have to recover is this idea we focus on a fiber or we focus on a thing. And we have to understand that it's part of a system and how do we participate in this system. And, and when we're looking at the system then, one of the um, 
one of our challenges is going to be a business in uh, a, a business um, norm, which is uh, on uh, economies of scale, which is forcing this terrific overproduction, which is literally killing us. Okay, and so um, one of the things that uh, we are looking at in terms of putting vital manufacturing infrastructure back into our community so that we have the capacity to make. One of the things I think about is that this is really a new world, okay? This is, this is I mean, it's a return, okay? It's a recovery of a kind of uh, culture and an economy and a way of, of, of being. But when I look at the last big, in, you know, kind of like the way our world changed, and I look at the emergence of e-commerce, okay? And you look at Jeff Bezos and Amazon, and all those years when everyone was snickering, saying, oh, he's losing all that money on books. I mean, they must be, they must be wackadoo, right? <laughs> They're totally wackadoo. And what you realize was going on, actually, is that they were building the infrastructure for e-commerce, okay? And now it's like extraordinarily um, um, profitable and valuable. I look at where we are, and we have to build the infrastructure to decarbonize the economy. And that's going to take levels of investment. And so you're going to need the same kind of future, forward-looking uh, investors and perhaps venture capitalists, perhaps. But I also look at the initiatives that are already being made in terms of our petroleum industry's big oil that is spending X amount of money on decarbonization technologies. And then the Department of Energy is spending $100 million on decarbonization technology. And yet I hear that farmers and ranchers and taking care of the earth is actually keeping carbon in balance. So when we're looking at building these new economies, I wonder how do we best invite these traditional investments that are going to very talk about I mean, I think it's quite dubious, these decarbonization technologies, which have huge capital, I mean, uh, carbon footprints to build, huge carbon footprints to run, and then they're sucking the carbon out of the air. I mean, it's just... Um, that they just put in there, okay? And so, I mean, talk about a methane balance, right? Um, so when, I, when, I'm when I'm thinking about what we need to really accomplish what we're doing, we need investment in farmers and, and ranchers. I, I know that's a Northeast term to say farmer. Um, and, and I think this conversation isn't vivid enough about how our farms produce the fibers <clears throat> excuse me, produce the fibers that are so much more ecological. Okay, when you have wool, you wash it less. So much of what happens with fashion's impact <laughs> is post-purchase. How many times do you wash it? And we've got these new technologies, these formats like, you know, the library model of Rent the Runway. And people think, oh, well, that's really good because it's cutting down manufacturing-related emissions because you're just borrowing it. But when you look at the transportation impact of that easy-to-click, Easy to, easy to return, right? I mean, we know that from just the, the Amazon model of buying. But also, if I get this wonderful wool suit that, that, that William is wearing tonight, okay, um, which he has gotten at Rent the Runway and returns, they have to dry clean it. <laughs> Never, right? <laughs> 
he, they have to dry clean it before they send it to me. And then Abby's going to wear it next week at that, at that party. That's going to look great, OK? So then they have to dry clean it for Abby, OK? And now Emily, you're going to wear it. And then Andra's going to wear it, OK? Karen, you're going to wear it. So that's one, two, three, four. I mean, how many dry cleanings is that, right? <laughs> and then Trent wants to wear it, OK? <laughs> so um, you know, these models that I think, they point to where we need to go. They point to a problem. But we don't stop there. That's not a solution. I mean, look carefully at that. I mean, there's been a big study now, Union of Concerned, Sci Union of Concerned Scientists have just produced a, 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 a research on Uber. Everyone thought, oh, no one's going to buy a car. You're just going to do ride hailing. And it's actually causing 70% more emissions, OK, because they just drive all over the place. So I, I wonder if anyone on this panel has thoughts. I think there should be. Um, a, I think there should be a farm aid. I think we have, uh, and it should be a green farm aid toward more uh, carbon sequestration, more farmers. We have so much public land in Connecticut that basically has to be mowed. We talked about this, Karen. Okay, let's contract graze that and get young farmers on those lands. Um, any thoughts on this, esteemed panel? For sure. You want? No, go for you it. You go? start. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's a great idea. I mean, you should. De we should definitely be using the lands that we have for their best use and getting ruminants on them um, instead of expending more carbon to mow them and basically lose all of that, you know, forage that you would be otherwise feeding to the animals. And you're you're sort of throwing something away that's very valuable. So, um, but, and additionally, having more support, I think, all the farmers I've talked to, more support from the state and from the towns um, is definitely one of the things that they've called out as like something that's missing. It's, uh, there's a lot of focus on um, vegetable crops and not very much focus on um, people that keep animals, so having that extra support from the state and the towns. And the federal, federal government. Yes, well, yes, if of it's course. Department of Energy. So I think I'm just going to go back to what it takes sometimes is creating that bridge. Why does it matter? You know, we know in this room why it matters. Um, but the town or the state needs to understand why that makes financial sense for them to do that. Um, so sometimes you have to tell the story. I mean, I used to be in healthcare and, and we were, I wanted to build a health center. We, were, we worked for poor people um, who had no insurance or very limited insurance. And of course you want to build a health center for that. I could not get anyone to fund it until I translated it into the number of jobs that was going to be created. Then I had the funding in six weeks. So sometimes you just have to tell the story in the way, and you hate to have to do that. It doesn't feel good to have to do that sometimes, but sometimes you have to tell the story in a way that is compelling to the audience you're speaking to. So um, let's just do the cost of, you know, the cost of the cost of climate change in ten years, okay? And just bring that forward. That money will have to be spent and have have, have happened. And I think that's what the finance community is already doing when they're putting out those numbers, okay? So let's know those numbers are gonna be spent and spend them now and therefore avert that and build prosperity. I feel very, very passionate about an appropriate level of investment coming to our frontline environment, people who are the farmers. 
So this isn't a difficult recipe. It's very easy. <laughs> Put more profitability in what the farmer produces, and he will produce in excess. It will never happen coming from a top mandate down. You'll have a government interference. You'll have a discussion on how it needs to be done. You'll have somebody in another country in Brazil that thinks they can do it better. They'll have more money than we have. You put profitability in the products that are produced, and the American farmer will do better than anybody else in the world. It's that simple. Okay, question. Are, does, do we, do we, is it really put profitability in that, or do we encumber the offshore with a carbon tax that actually makes that more expensive? so that we are cost competitive now. How, no. do you, how do you put profitability in there? I mean, you put profitability in there by lowering, lowering our overhead, which can be accomplished if we get an appropriate level of investment in farmers. Or you put profitability. Oh, let me just wait in on that, and then I'll give it to you. <laughs> so, yeah, because anytime we put a tax trying to protect somebody, it comes back to bite the people that we try to protect. And so the only way to accomplish this is just simply create the grassroots demand for the products that we're producing. You know, and today, let's face the reality, we have the super centers. Walmart controls 30% of the food sales, retail sales, and the majority of the people go there because it's cheaper than they can get it somewhere else. So the answer is increase profitability by increasing the demand of people who are willing to pay for the products that are produced in Connecticut, in Nebraska, Texas, wherever the case may be. Yeah, he said exactly what I was going to say, that you increase sales, you increase profitability. Boy, I'm glad I beat that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the terrific things about being part of the Union of Concerned Researchers in Fashion is that we have um, people all over the world who we are now in touch with who can send us information. And there was a terrific study done in Norway that was um, completed in September 2019. And one of the board members of the UCRF sent it to me. And to your point, uh, uh, Trent and William, about um, uh, building that uh, consumer demand for these products, and I, I bring this to you, um, Nancy, is in Norway they talked about how um, there are certain um, seals of approval for foods. Okay, so you'll go and want that food because you'll know it's from a particular area. Can we, um, what would you think about building a label, okay, around very local wools so that there is a, there is a, an understanding of that, that value and wools and, 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 and meats, okay? This is an important uh, double income we have to have. I, I think th I think that's a great idea. I mean, we're all about labels, right? You know, we love to know. Yeah. You know, we love to we love to wear labels and show labels. I think that's a great idea, um, and I think um, showing then, you know, going back to my, the the value proposition, is showing that by virtue of buying these things locally, supporting the locally, this is unfortunately the bad word, the tax revenue that increases, and this is why it makes sense. You know, this is why it makes sense. But I think, um, like we do with so, you know, the farm-to-table restaurants or whatever it may be, we have the, the farm-to-scour-to-studio uh, textiles and, you know, made in New London or made in Connecticut or made, you know, whatever it may be, and we can trace that from start to finish. I think that's a great idea. I just wonder if it's going to be big enough um, to, to impact the change that you want to make. Um, you know, I think this is a, a much bigger change than just you know what we're what we're trying to do here. And so I would look at the the experts here in terms of the the impact of something like this and what it would what it would mean. Well, of course, it has to be big enough to have that impact, but you have to start. 
And you know, when you build any sort of business that's um, selling consumer products that are that are that have come from um, farm-raised products, you know, the first season you're not profitable. The second, or third, or fourth, maybe not. But but what's interesting is once you start to um, build word of mouth, and also to talk to that labeling, you're not saying, oh, this is going to make you taller and younger. And you're actually giving fact that you're using as marketing, not not um, fantasy, which makes it really compelling, especially to the younger generation, because they're all about authenticity. And I think what happens is you do that pocket in Connecticut and then other areas start to pick up as well. And then they connect. And so you have to start. Well, I think that's one of the things that um, the Connecticut Fiber Shed chapter is is starting to do with some of our farmers is they're starting to label um, their finished products, their yarns and uh, scarves and various things as Connecticut Fiber Shed. And so well, that's one the of the Connecticut Blanket Project. That, um, and then, yeah, we have that amazing Connecticut Blanket Project. Um, that's not part of our group, but the um, Connecticut Sheep Breeders Association does a really good job with that. They, um, I think it's it's almost all New England. I think one of the processes has to go, I believe it's the scouring, has to go out of state um, or out of uh, the region of the Northeast. But um, you know, I think empowering some of the existing labeling structures would also be good. The Connecticut Grown Pro Program um, is pretty strong in the agriculture sector, sector um, for promoting Connecticut grown you know, vegetable products. So uh, sort of bolstering that. And um, I was speaking to a fiber farmer yesterday and she was sort of remarking that she wished that there was like a wool mark for America. And- um, Wool mark is the Australian um, wool advocacy organization. Yeah, and um, I know that ASI started one um, last year, I think, called American Wool. Wool. Well, they, they contacted us. Um, <laughs> so right? they're fairly new, mm -hmm. um, but giving strength to those existing labels may also help as well. I, th I think there's also a, f um, a real misunderstanding about what cost is. You know, when you say, I mean, to the Walmart um, model, you know, oh, well, I can get this t-shirt for a dollar. Well, this t-shirt actually has a cost. And when you produce it in that way, that's so cheap, it is happening off offshore where there aren't environmental protections, where the labor isn't uh, uh, paid a, a fair wage. And so it's very important for us as consumers to understand that maybe a garment that is, seems to be very cheap has the same price as what we would have here. Someone else is paying that cost. So someone else's landscape, someone else's river, someone else's sister or mother or brother um, and, and it's really our purchasing power that will drive it. That's one of the things that's happened in fashion is that the brands have really co-opted who is in charge of this sustainability issue. And just step back and think about that. What, is it really reasonable that a, a, an organization that's making profit from a current model is going to significantly reinvent it? There, it's not likely, okay? And so again, it's about informing the consumer of this isn't a cheap t-shirt. This is a t-shirt of a basic cost and who's paying that if you aren't. And a lot, do you want to follow up on that, way? Okay. And th this is the same discussion that we're having today in the food business, okay? So I'm wearing a 100% wool Schaefer made in the USA. Most all of my vests are Schaefer, including 
the buttons, and that's their pride. Wow. Their pride is that they're 100% American-made. You already told us that only 3% of the U.S. clothing is American-made, and yet every piece of clothing 327 million Americans buy every day tells you what country it was made in. So just labeling it isn't working. The reason it isn't working is what you've already spoke of, and I just want to enunciate, and that is that the current retail monopoly generates a profit by selling a t-shirt very cheap. And so the answer continues to be find a way to educate and assist smaller op opportunities, f uh, fiber farmer, which is a word I never used until that moment, <laughs> and create that revenue and assist. And, you know, the best thing about marketing is getting loud. Yeah. We always think it just takes a lot of money. It just takes getting loud. The minorities always win, whether it's in Congress or at the marketplace, because they're the loudest. So if this is something that we believe in, we just really champion that farmer and, and talk about the whole system. And what I want to really enunciate is what you mentioned earlier, Jane, is that the farmer is part of the system. Everything that we do is a continual cycle. And if we don't have the right soil health, we pay the price. I just It's not Mother Earth. It's we pay the price. Yeah, I, I was going to talk about the fact that it is amazing to me where someone will go into a store and say, oh, no, 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 I, I, I will not buy from child labor or dirty labor or any of, the, any of that list, but I want my leggings to cost $5. They don't cost $5. They don't cost $5, <laughs> right. You know, unless mm -hmm. <laughs> you've cheated somewhere else. There's no such thing. So, I, you know, some of our work will be upending that methodology or that, that belief system. It's, it is, it's really... I mean, again, to go back to the farmer, the farmer is not saying, you know, I'm going to get this sheep. The farmer is saying, what are the weather conditions? What is the food that's needed? Where does the grazing happen? The, the farmer, it's not a, a thing. It's, a, it's, it's, it's part of a living system. And somehow as consumers, we've been co-opted into thinking that not participating in living systems is somehow joyful. And to your point about, about, or Nancy, I think it was about, about place and, you know, I'm Gucci, I'm Dior, I'm these, I'm these names. Jennifer had made me a sample of um, all the different diverse breeds we have in Connecticut. And we took it to a young designer who we're very interested in, who uh, works with, with wool and, and knitting. And he picked up these fibers that, I, I, that you had made for us. And he said, ah, each one of these is a place. And I thought that was such a, a, a profound understanding that, I mean, to the point it's not just made in America, it's made by people in, 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 in dialogue with the land that sustains us. And where did, how, we need to reconnect that. <laughs> just to be clear, William, that farmers use child labor too. <laughs> <laughs> One of my three is sitting right there, which is why she lives in Maryland. Hard to get off the farm. <laughs> I, think, I think part of, you know, unfortunately, part of the way we do that, though, is through shame, right? Uh, so no, everyone's ashamed to use water bottles, plastic, you know, single-use water bottles now because that's horrible for the environment. You know, for a time it was Hershey's. Don't eat Hershey's because it's child labor. So sometimes, unfortunately, you have to use that avenue. It's not enough sometimes to say, oh, you know, this piece costs more because it was made by adults in America versus child labor somewhere else. The fact is it's a tenth of the price, so that's what I'm going to pay. Um, so you've got to create more of a... 
of a reason not to be seen in that cheap T-shirt, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, I also think that one of the things that is um, challenging for us as a community is the fast fashion uh, uh, corporate entities who say, okay, our mature markets aren't going to participate in this anymore, so we're going to go to the developing countries, okay? It's like, it is a world ecology, it is a world ecology in that, you know, there, there have been um, NASA photos recently about the um, uh, air quality over China, if you've seen it, like what the air quality looked like in November and now with the, with the manufacturing shutdown. And it's like, you know, oh, well, look at this. And there's a, an, an economic historian I admire very much. He's at Columbia. And he was, um, he was saying, well, basically, China now has emissions that are greater than the U.S. and Europe combined. Okay, so to some extent, we are now bystanders on this. Um, uh, what's going to happen? The players are going to be India and China. And I sent him an email with a question, which he hasn't responded to. You, you can answer now. Um, and I said, but how can we be bystanders in this if the emissions are driven by manufacturing that comes from our demand? Right? Okay, and again, I think, you know, they talk about the slow food movement and the slow clothing movement, and I don't like anything very slow, so I don't necessarily like that, but I like the idea of it, have a full thought, have a full thought. If it's so cheap, why is it so cheap? For instance, we hear a lot about the, about Caring Group and about the, the, the um, environmental P&Ls, uh, profit and losses going on, and they're saying, well, you know, our extended supply chains are really, really difficult to track, and so it's hard for us to measure. I'm always like, wow, yeah, that's going to be really challenging. And then I'm like, <laughs> anonymity in the 21st century is really expensive, right? If you don't know what's happening at the end of those supply chains, baby, you are not asking, okay? And so it's that level of accountability for our, our consumers that will drive the market. The brands are not going to drive the market, okay? And that's to your point of how we put the value back in the farm, which is what sustains us. I had actually, I, I'd like to open it to questions, but I had actually intended to start this in a different way. So instead, I would like to finish our part of this like this. I would like each of you to tell me what you're wearing and why you're wearing it. <laughs> I mean, I know we can see it. <laughs> and so, of course, Trent already did that, yeah. okay? So we're just catching up, but that's how I wanted to start. Um, I'm a big believer in two birds with one stone, so I am wearing um, a cashmere wool blazer that was handmade, no um, glue or anything like that inside of it, that I did in Italy when I was there. Um, when I was there. And it's also lined um, in uh, a down fabric, so I can wear it as a coat. But, so it's two things in one. Um, hi, I'm Jennifer. <laughs> um, I'm wearing a hand-knit uh, sweater. This was my first adult human-sized knitting sweater um, that I made myself. It has buttons from um, this really cool lady, and I believe it's Vermont. She does these wooden buttons from um, fallen limbs <laughs> and uh, a seed necklace. But the rest, unfortunately, is regular because I'm got the maternity going on <laughs> so we'll supply that soon <laughs> the most beautiful thing in the world is a pregnant woman they glow like nothing else uh, my hat was made by a gentleman in Denver for me 
my boots are made in Texas. Thanks to Andrew for turning me on. And uh, my Wrangler jeans, I'm pretty sure, were made by a family in Mexico that appreciate my $3.42. <laughs> my underwear are not hemp. <laughs> a belt came All from right. Kentucky. You're very thorough. You're very thorough, Trent. <laughs> and being the boring person in the room, I, I am answer. not wearing a single thing that I'm proud of. Uh-huh. Yeah. And well, that says a lot. But it says a lot. You know, one of the things that, that we haven't talked about that might be of interest is 3% of the clothes are made here, but aren't 100% of the clothes disposed of here? Oh, well done. <laughs> so isn't that, you know, just something to think about as, we, as we're well, talking about Textile waste is, yeah. a, is, a, is a huge conversation yeah. for us, um, focusing on, on the natural fibers and keeping things, you know, the study I mentioned from Oslo, the study I mentioned from Oslo, um, they actually really focus on the fact that it's, it's, it's use function okay, of the clothing, how do we extend these um, garments so that they have longer life and, and less stress on our systems. And it is a real problem for us with the extraordinary amount of, of synthetic textile because we really don't know how these things break down. I mean, now we know about microplastics in the oceans when we wash things. You don't have that with wool, right? So I'm going to just speak about this charming little necklace that maybe any of you have noticed, which is um, made for me by was made by a, a friend and a neighbor in in Reading. She's now moved to Rhode Island, but her mother was a woman named Erica Wilson. And Erica Wilson, for those of you who may be in the needle uh, craft uh, uh, field, really was a kind of early the Martha Stewart in the sense of bringing handcrafts um, back to. Um, I guess social engagement, right? People would get around and, and do things like that. So this is a handmade Jolly Roger, and I feel that we are the pirates mm -hmm. of the new way forward. So I mm -hmm. thought I would wear it as an emblem. <laughs> um, I'd love to open up to questions now. Jane, I think Abby's got a lot to share. Her body language says, I want to contribute. Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. I'm going to pass this then immediately to the left. <laughs> we'll welcome you over. Okay. Yeah. Hi, I'm Abby. I'm a local farmer out in Basra, Connecticut, which is about an hour the other direction. Um, I raise sheep and alpacas, and I work on an alpaca farm that has its own uh, fiber mill, where we process people's fleeces as well as our own. So we're turning raw fleece into a finished product, which would be yarn. So then a producer is able to sell it uh, to the consumer to either knit or crochet, weave, whatever they will with it. So that's kind of what I do. I don't know what I'm supposed to contribute here. Trying to any <laughs> questions? <laughs> so um, I, I would just like to say that Abby is, is uh, uh, really important for us because you must be all of 23 or 24? 21. Okay. <laughs> okay, she's 21. And the average age of, of uh, farmers in Connecticut is like 54. 54, 56, right? The right? average age of the United States farmer is three years <laughs> older than the average person in St. Petersburg retirement community. Wow. wow. True story. Wow. So the next generation of, of, of farmers, um, are, it's just terrifically important to us. Uh, Karen, who is of also a um, Connecticut farmer, and we had an amazing conversation where I learned about Connecticut's 20 uh, vocational agriculture schools um, where you can go, you can opt out as a middle school student, go to a special high school. You can either train to be a vet or train to be working actually 
running the farm or on the farm, the full spectrum, right from science to practice, um, which is, I think, a tremendous initiative from our state uh, to building young generation. I'm an artist, I teach at Parsons, I teach young artists, and so many young people want to be working on the land. And how do we, how do we help that happen is um, important for us to, um, to think about, and, and not just think about, to do. Um, questions from anyone? Please, Connor. Hi, my name is Connor. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering if you all have any ideas on how we can support entrepreneurs in the farming and textile industries, just at the very early stages, potentially. Well, I'm just going to repeat, Connor, what I said earlier. We, we have to get loud. So many times we hear about a good idea, and we'll sit in this meeting room, and I'll just issue the challenge because uh, we're talking about a lot of cool things all the way from Manhattan to the most rural county in the nation. And we have these ideas floating about. And what are each one of us going to do different tomorrow or in April or May that we did yesterday? Because if we all just sit around here and talk about these things and then go about in our routine and doing the same thing in the future, what did we accomplish? So my answer to you seems to be somewhat like throwing it off, but it is, what are you going to do different tomorrow? If this is what you believe in, what are each one of us going to do different tomorrow to accomplish that, Abby? Something to maybe provide a little bit of light to your question was, I know I had asked those questions because starting my own farm, I was like, all right, I'm still a college student trying to work part-time to support my start of a farm. Is there any way I can get grants or any type of aid? The answer that I got was I need to provide three years worth of tax information before I'm eligible to qualify for these grants. So I need to stay in business three years before I'm able to get any aid. So that's what I found that unfortunately. I'd like to speak to that. Sure. So I think your position though is from the private sector and, um, and, your, and, and, and the money you were applying for was public sector money, right? It was small business grant or, yeah, right? Looking at anything, yeah. Yes. So I think th what we need to uh, talk about is how do we partner, how do we invest in what is going to be the future of an absolutely vital and transformative um, industry? I'm quite serious when I make the analogy between the e-commerce model and the level of investment, and I think you understand what I'm talking about. Um, but it's going to be something different than the venture capital model, which is just you know scale to and 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 then exit and crash and burn. Um, it's really about building long-term value, which is what the early investors in in Amazon were doing. They understood long-term value. So I'd love to have that conversation with you. So let's do it. <laughs> Ab had a question. And he's a lender, so I think he's going to give all the answers right here. Well, it's I guess over. That, We're done. The solution. No, I would just say, tell us about your venture. If you're, are you doing? Are you seeking capital right now? Uh, I'm not really seeking capital. I've got this organization called Social Sector Network, and we support early stage social entrepreneurs working towards the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals. If he doesn't speak into a microphone, the people watching are not going to be happy. <laughs> Sorry, Jane. Yeah, so I run an organization called Social Sector Network, LLC, and it's 
focused on supporting early stage social enterprises working towards the UN 17 sustainable development goals and um yeah so I'd prefer to get funding for our partner organizations before my organization um yeah and also speaking to your issue a little bit I uh I've got like an ebook with all these strategies on different funding mechanisms you can access if you want to check that out so yeah great um my quite first of all thank you all for being here it's been really informative two things one william you've been on the big brand side fashion house side why now and and how do you force change by them the brands to follow or will they because my sense is from hearing this and observation is the capital's not going to flow to change to your point a profit making enterprise and system so so why now is there momentum and how do you take it from the large brand to what you're doing now um well what i've been working on for the last five years is um <clears throat> in addition to designing but i've been involved in an industrial project where we took a natural fiber down and converted it into a fabric um, in a clean um, technologically advanced um, way first ever and it was it's quite disruptive and it's won quite a few awards because of how disruptive it is and how it changes and so part of it is to take that experience to new london to the scourer and i'll circle back to that but more importantly the world has changed it's not oh let me follow let me dress exactly the way gucci um, tells me to dress anymore and i think that um it has also changed from where these brands as i said the brands are dictating no now it's peer-to-peer -peer. it's instagram it's social everyone's learning from each other so and there's this collective consciousness of no i want authentic i want better i want sustainable i want proper i want to have a world to have kids in and so that's sort of the the macro and the micro is I met Jane. <laughs> yeah. One one follow up is, um, I mean, let's take the Walmart example. I mean, it still needs to be cost. It needs to be available that the average person can. We can feel that way. So I guess, um, Trent, how do you how do you um, make it profitable for the farmers, and how do you increase the number of um, you know, how do you reverse, you know, the trend from 1930 to now for just more people to, um, to raise them, to raise the, the sheep or. So the easy answer to that ab is not the real answer. The easy answer is that you become part of a niche and then the niche adds more value and you're part of a system that captures that value. For example, there's a butcher shop in this town that we went in this morning where milk is $8 a gallon, $16 a gallon, $8 for a half a gallon. Eggs are $6.50 a dozen. Uh, Dry-aged T-bones are $28.50 a pound. And all of that is, as a farmer, you're looking at it like, we gotta, this is what we got to raise. <laughs> the sheer reality is that roughly 4% of the United States population will pay those prices. So we have to be a part of a system that adds value, but then also be closer to that end user so that we capture more. So in, in 1950, the farmer's share of the consumer's food dollar spent was roughly 60%. In 2019, it was 14%. 
and I would bet the parallels are exactly with fiber. So the, the answer to me long term is how do we get closer to that consumer's dollar? I don't believe long term there's going to be a significant number of people willing to pay more for those products is how do we as the farmer get more of what the consumer is spending. That's pretty easy. So I mean that's an easy solution but how do you do that? And it comes back to kind of the overall theme here which is who's controlling at the retail level and, and who are we going to cut out? So. I, I'd like to speak to that because the change is already happening and it is happening fast and it's this generation here that is driving the change. And we know that 40% of uh, consumers now are Gen Z. Gen Z are very concerned about uh, 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 ethical uh, manufacturing, very concerned about, about ecological. I think Trent is, is, is spot on. We talk about this in our work about how do we, I mean, why, how did we meet? We did a label with you. Why did we do that? To, to connect with the community and raise visibility. Get loud, engage people. And this what is what I think is the real strength of the UN Charter, which says, it's not saying if you're a signatory on this, go and talk to the brands. It's saying you must use your platform to speak to the consumer. Because at the end of the day, the brands want us to know, oh, well, we've got the capital and we're doing this. But baby, if there's no market for it, okay, horse and buggy model, right? I mean, I think that that, that change is happening really fast. And in retail itself, we know that 10 out of the 16 major bankruptcies of 2019 were in retail we're apparel, okay? There is, people don't want it, okay? They don't want this stuff. Hence, H&M's $4 billion backlog of unsold inventory, right? And so I think where we are is people need the actual better options. And they need to know that what real cost is. So if you are eating this cheap hamburger, okay, that has been raised in a way that is uh, cruel to the animal, um, has, has, has ecological impacts which are dreadful, and you actually understand what that cost is, the consumer will make a better choice. Now, in fashion, what happens is, you know, people will say to me, well, this is just for the very wealthy. And it's like, why do you think it is okay for you to wear a shirt that costs less than your cup of coffee, okay, which is an Aisha? Uh, who is the founder of this foundation, Remake, where Eamon is also um, has been, is a designer with. And we have compartmentalized value and, and mistaken it and, 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 and revere it as profit, okay? But these profits are impover impoverishing us, and this generation is actually looking to buy value. So I think that change is happening, and I think it's happening fast. Uh, Jane, so don't you think also that some of that value comes from the story and the connection? Oh, totally. Because I feel that um, the connection with the farmers and the connection with these people that you're then interacting with long term, I think adds a lot to the um, the final garment. I mean, like if you are buying from the same farm, you know, the $5 or however much milk um, like I do every I go to the same farm every week and buy $5 milk in glass bottles like they used to get um, for my son. And 
we have a really great relationship with that farmer now and we see him multiple times a week and I think that you know we're sort of reaching like the stuff capacity like people are scaling back and people want sort of meaningful things to do with their money and I think that this is definitely one of those avenues I and I think that that's what you know someone said to me you know well I don't see it Jane and I said well it's an opportunity and if everyone saw it it wouldn't be an opportunity <laughs> And as far as regular consumer, when someone's spending, you know, oh, I'm only buying shirt, this shirt because it's, you know, $18 at H&M, but you're buying one every week, right. it's the same amount of money. It's just amortized differently. Okay. I want to speak to uh, two things. Number one, that hamburger doesn't exist in the United States where <laughs> people are cruel to the animal. That's that's a true story, and I'd be glad to document that anywhere. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You mentioned that you don't want to buy a hamburger if the people have been cruel to the uh -huh, animal, uh -huh. and it's maybe not fit to eat. That doesn't happen in the United States. We have the best system in the world. People take care of their critters, despite what you read on the Internet. But I want to just expand upon my point of being loud, and you might think it's not related to you in any way, shape, or form, but Connecticut does have a raw milk law. Okay, so... Pasteurization of milk was one of the four pillars of public health at a time when we did not have refrigeration like we did. And I don't believe that we should be able to just go to the grocery store and buy raw milk. But by the, the state government telling you as a consumer, you can't, I can't enter a contract with Jen and buy her milk from her affects every one of us in this room that want to also sell our fibers to our neighbor. We have too much of the state government imposing their values on us as individual citizens. It, I understand them thinking they're wanting to protect us, but they should not be intruding upon me doing business with my neighbor. And I assure you, nobody was there in this room when Connecticut passed that law. Hmm. But my point is that it's all incrementalism. Yes. And every law that's passed, it makes it tougher for somebody to do business on their own property with somebody else who wants to do business on their property. It affects all of us. And it's also, it's not only that it affects, it's also laggard. Okay, so the science, I mean, we were talking about, we're talking about soil science now. I mean, we know that we can uh, rebuild soil vitality. But when you've got I, I know from brownfields, industrially impacted landscapes, you know, we're supposed to encapsulate them. We're supposed to do these things that we can't heal. And those are regulatory frameworks. And that, you know, you are literally having to participate in systems that you know are doing harm. And we know them because of current science and the regulatory frameworks are entrenched, they're incumbent, and they are hard to move. And that is, uh, that is really difficult for us. And a lot of them are unknown until you're dealing with them. We had a, um, a client, a cheesemaker, and he, has, he cannot buy a partial um, truck of milk in Connecticut. You have to buy the whole, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's got to buy it out of state. So it's, it's just silly stuff like that that I think, because it was, the, the laws were made so long ago, that people just aren't aware of. And I think sometimes you just have to do a reality, you know, be loud. You know, this is the nonsense that, that we spend money regulating instead of giving it to farmers or doing whatever it may be. I heard today, I didn't verify this, but I heard today that it's illegal for a farmer to, uh, what was the number of sheep? To own a number, I'm, I'm look, not looking at you, Abby. It was a, a single farmer, a single man, legally cannot own sheep in the state of Connecticut. What? 
think it. it, it I think you'd be shocked at the old laws that still reside on the books. I'm I'm sharing something that I wouldn't share in public till I look it up. <laughs> but there are old laws like that that are completely irrelevant. Check yeah. it out, please. <laughs> Let's look that one up. But the, to the point, you know, they're created to benefit those that are all, the, the bigger companies. The purpose of a regulation should not be to limit business. It is to keep business regular. And what's happening is it creates barriers that small entities cannot compete with. People <laughs> <laughs> I know that different towns have different regulations, and that is one of the things that is um, challenging for people that want to keep animals. Um, I have a friend that was looking at a property in Avon, and it's just shy of four acres, and she would not be allowed to have more than three sheep on four acres, almost four acres, um, because of their specific rules about livestock and you can certainly keep more than you know three or four sheep on that amount of acreage and historically that's what that land was used for so the the towns have and i think that it's they're trying to keep a certain characteristic to their town but they forget that that characteristic of that land was not because of lawnmowers. That that beautiful bucolic scene was because it was being grazed with animals. It might smell. It might smell, and there might be noises. <laughs> I think um, when we when Eamon uh, began with his opening remarks, and he talked about imagination. Okay, I think part of um, where we would like to maybe wrap this is to understand that these compartments that we have become accustomed to putting uh, our, our values in and, our, and, and, and living within, I would like to see, for instance, the Department of Energy spend some fraction of the $100 million on decarbonization technology on understanding that a farm is a decarbonizing technology. Okay, And those tax dollars, particularly coming out of the DOE, are, are our monies. And how can we help build the kinds of uh, environment and landscape and communities? And to Jen's point about building a relationship with a farmer, I mean, we want to have engaged, caring, empathetic communities. You know, get to know your producer, help your producer. And, you know, to, to um, um, Trent's point about sustainability being co-opted, I mean, there is so much awareness that this is what people are craving for, that you have Macy's doing, you know, community-oriented experiential retail called Story, okay? Because everyone thinks stories are important, right? And you know, it's failed because it's not, okay? It just isn't that. And, and I think that we cannot underestimate how powerful we are. And when we shop for value, and we encourage our friends and our families to do this, it can scale really quickly. And uh, for our perspective, when you're saying, what are we going to do differently about this? I'm going to call you, and we're going to talk about business models and investment. Okay, But we are absolutely dedicated to making the good options so when you want a jumper, a sweater, okay, that meets these values, we have one for you. And we talk about you know, how do we price this 
to um, to make it available to all range of different people. And I think that that is going to require a level of investment. But if that investment is building healthy communities and decarbonizing the environment, give me some of that DOE money, okay, for us. I mean, not just us. <laughs> when Jane, don't you think also um, taking into what taking into account what he had said about the the cost per wear, um, right? Of course, taking that into account really makes a difference, and especially when you don't have to wash it very much. Like, you know, I think I've washed this one time since I made it, like last season. Uh, Wool you, is you just don't have to wash it very much. Mm -hmm. It takes very little soap. It doesn't take much water. You don't have to throw it in the wash every time you wear it. And you know, also the difference you could make to a small farmer by, by buying a sweater's amount of wool is huge for them. So you know, you could really lift a lot of farmers up very quickly. And I think it is also, it's, I mean, we identify in this category, it's about the producers developing the relationship with the farmers. Okay, so these are the garments and then being noisy about it, making it a, the conversation we wanna have and being available. Oh, please. Yeah. <laughs> just something that I also think would be very beneficial to the topic here is just the amount of education that people have basically a lack thereof is, emphasizing these fantastic properties of the wools. Genuinely had to wash your sweater like once since you made it. Many people who, consumers, don't understand or know these facts. So I think educating the public as well as a reinforcing factor would greatly uh, help our cause here as, to, as well. Yeah, and I, it's, so one of the labels we've, we've done, and which is how we met Ab, is called Climate Couture, and it's co-production. Um, and so we have three different price points um, in this co-production. But um, a, a colleague of ours is the president of the Norwalk River Watershed Association, and she's been a leading uh, player in the pollinator path to help support the bees. And she said to me, you know, I have spoken to communities from Yonkers up to Newburgh, okay? And she said, what I really understand is that Americans don't want to be taught. People don't want to be taught, okay? But they, they, they do want to, to know what to, what to do. And she said, you know, here's the stuff and go do it. Okay, it is really about creating, I think, the social context. And one of the reasons we're so excited about, about uh, New London and our experience in Stanford is that when you're doing this in the community, it becomes a social engagement. And so I think, uh, Trent, I know you've been doing your radio show for 17 years. It's about bridging the rural and urban divide. And this is really about building our communities, connecting with our producers. So the consumer is part of the process. And it's the process that we have to be supporting. It's not any one given output. Going, working away from siloed systems to a because ecosystem. Because they are It's an illusion that they are, okay? I mean, your cheap sweater is destroying that river in Thailand. It's a cost, you just don't, you're just not, allowed to know it but when you know it you don't want it <laughs> i heard you to say think about how we'd make our individual wrap up mm -hmm. uh first of all janet if dudes doing laundry knew they could only wash their sweater once a year <laughs> you sold half of them already it'll be the one wash sweater dude <laughs> secondly and, and more importantly you know the united states military once again has wool back in their uniforms because it is the absolute best way to protect 
those individuals risking their lives to protect our freedom. And they protect our freedom under the guise of the United States Constitution. And the most important part of that Constitution is the Bill of Rights. And number one on that Bill of Rights is the freedom to speak, the right to assemble, and the right to be heard. So because wool protects our military men and women, it protects our right to be heard. We live in a representative republic. So many times that get hijacked. We do not live in democracy. We live in a representative republic. And if we just simply get louder, and what was your word at the beginning, which I think would be a distraction. Oh, uh, no, disruptor. a dis disruptor. <laughs> which can be distracting. <laughs> we'll be heard. Yeah. And I think it's that simple. And thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this. I can't top that. Um, I, I think you, 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 um, you made a great point about the sweater because unfortunately, um, you can tell somebody that you're destroying a river in Thailand and the person will say this, but they'll still buy the $3. Yeah. But they don't want to do their laundry every day. Um, so I think creating that value proposition. It's so disturbing. Hey, <laughs> I don't want to do my, my, my son's laundry every day. But um, you know, um, Creating that value proposition that gets the point across, but still gets the result that you're looking for in the words that people want. So mm -hmm. I, I don't need to do laundry every day. This is going to last. This sweater is going to last ten years, not one this season. Is Fifteen lattes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Just like you know, uh, the cost of ownership of it's a, a car. You know, what's the cost of ownership of this garment? Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I think I think uh, these were great points, and I'm very very honored to be with all of you. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that the same way that, you know, there's, you know, you have that friend that, you know, wears only navy blue and they're conservative or their friend that wears pink and they're, you know, wild or et cetera, et cetera. And there are these tribes of people wearing different kinds of fashion. I think I look forward to a day where, the, you know, the tribe is supporting the local economy. That was my point. Well, and wouldn't we all look so much different and so much more original if we were wearing things from our local bioregions? It would be really amazing to have those connections with our fiber farmers and also have our own sort of fashion experience where we are creating our own <laughs> yeah, I wanna, I collectively wanna, in this area. So I want to speak to that idea. Um, there's a, uh, actually a local young woman named Emily Weiss, who you may know her because she's the CEO of Glossier. So one of the unicorns of the uh, cosmetics world. And she talked about the fact that it used to be in cosmetic that you wanted to teach your student relationships. So you went to the shop and you went to the department store and the, you know, the, the, cosmeti you know, the cosmetics person would tell you what to do, right? And then you had the breakthrough of the Sephora model where you had aggregated all these different brands. And now we're at this period where it's peer to peer with the influencers, right? And I think what we're seeing and what we can feel is, you know, people are going to look at it and it's like, oh, you're wearing, you know, that um, uh, generic brand. Okay, it doesn't mean anything. And if anything, it probably means bad things. It means, you know, you're going to read it and it's going to look like carbon emissions and it's going to look like a dirty river and it's going to look like microplastics. Okay, and you're going to be able to read that. And I think that that is, um, is going to be a really... Um, beautiful way to be in the world. Anything else? My fine people, you've been so terrific. I feel very energized. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Yay. <laughs>